We need you more than breath itself every hour of the day. Every, every breath you give us, Father, is just a gift from your hand. Thank you for your grace. Now, Father, thank you for your word that is, is penetrating, that it pierces. I pray, Father, as we open it today, that you will come here and meet with us and that you will speak to our hearts and help us leave here differently because we've interacted with you today, Father. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've been in this series over the past few weeks called Puzzled. And what we're doing is we're talking about those times or seasons in life where God's activity or his inactivity or his silence has left you puzzled. And the point of this series has basically been this. It's basically been a reminder that what we experience in life sometimes as far as disappointment with God or unanswered prayers, or that frustration that comes when it just seems like God isn't paying attention to what you're going through, that all those feelings are common, and that you don't have to lose faith during those times or seasons of life, that there's a way to maintain faith, and there's even a way to come to faith when God's response to your uncertainty or to your problems leaves you puzzled. Now, to kind of get us all on the same page this morning, as we kind of dive into today's passage and today's topic, I want to begin with a question. And this question is a question that you've asked before. If you're a Christian, you've asked this question. If you're not a Christian, you've probably still asked this question. If you're not sure what you are, you kind of vacillate and go back and forth, you're kind of in that in-between phase, you probably still have asked this question. And the question is this. The question is, why doesn't God do something about that? Now, the interesting thing about that is that you don't have to think very hard before you come up with a that, do you? I mean, your that, your that might be sitting next to you this morning. Your that might be back home in bed and wouldn't get up and come today. They're back at home at Bedside Baptist or Pillow Presbyterian, but, but they're back at home. Maybe your that is a coworker. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's somebody in the PTA. But all of us have a that. For some of you, your that is a whole lot more serious. For some of you, your that is an illness. For some of you, your that is a child that you've been praying for for months and maybe years who's kind of drifted away, and God doesn't seem to be doing anything about that. We've all asked that question before, haven't we? In one way or another, why doesn't God do anything or something about that? In fact, play along if you will, because I think this is so important that we just kind of take off this morning from the same spot, kind of level the playing field. If you've ever asked this question, maybe not those exact words, but if you've ever asked that question at some point in life, why doesn't God do something about that? I want you to raise your hand this morning. If you've ever asked that question, now just keep them up for a minute. Keep them up. And now just kind of turn around and look around the room. Okay? That's almost all of us, right? And those who didn't raise their hand, they didn't understand the question. Okay? <laughs> but I mean, we've all asked that question at some point, and, and, and this is just really important because all of us, in one way or another, at one time, maybe multiple times in life, we go through this. All of us have times, don't we? When God doesn't act the way we would expect God would act. And, and it just doesn't make any sense. Because, I mean, if, if we just for a moment had that kind of power, 
we'd do something about it, wouldn't we? I mean, if we could just step in and fix it, then we'd have fixed it a long time ago. And the fact that God doesn't seem to be doing anything about that, that's a big deal in our life. And the point we've been trying to make over the past few weeks is that even though we can't explain everything God does or doesn't do, it's still possible to keep our faith in times of uncertainty that even though we, we still can't explain all that God does or all that God doesn't do, that he's still very much concerned about the that's in our life. And what's amazing about the story that we're going to see today, and, and this is just incredible, the story we're going to look at today, Jesus actually didn't so much teach about this as he created a that in someone's life, and then he didn't do anything about that So years later, we could read this story, people over the centuries could read this story and find themselves in the story, could find some hope in the story. Jesus created a that, didn't do anything about that, so we could find some hope for the that's in our life. Does that make any sense? In other words, what happens in the story? Jesus created a scenario to show us how we can press on, how we can move forward, how we can maintain faith when we're going through difficult times that God doesn't seem to be doing anything about. If you brought your Bible, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Gospel of John, the Bible has four Gospels, starts the New Testament, four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, different tellings, perspectives of the life of Jesus. John's about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. And if you grew up in church, and maybe just hearing John 11, you already know, but if you grew up in church and you get to this passage, let me tell you what you're going to do. You're going to see who this story is about, and your mind is going to immediately race to the end because you know the end of the story. The story is that good. You're just going to jump ahead because you're going to see the guy in the story. Oh, I know that story. I know what happens. You're going to race to the end. But here's what I want to challenge you to do this morning. I want you to try to not do that. I want you to try to just take this just act by act or scene by scene, just piece by piece, and just let the story unfold. Because there's so much drama in this story that you don't want to miss what Jesus, what God is trying to tell us as the story unfolds. There's so much stuff in it. You are in this story. You'll find yourself in this story. And God has something for you today. It's John chapter 11. And here's how our story begins. We'll put it up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. It reads this way. It says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Little parenthetical thought here. John, the gospel writer, says, this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So basically, this is the opening credits. This is just the very beginning. This, these three verses set up the entire story for us. <clears throat> Jesus has these three friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You think everybody would be a friend of Jesus, but these three people were special. Jesus had a close relationship with these people. In fact, he spent more time with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus than he did almost anyone else except for his disciples. Jesus was a traveling teacher. He'd go from town to town, and when he'd come through here, he'd stay at their house. They'd take Jesus in. They would feed him, and they would care for him. These people spent a lot of time together. So, of course, it just makes sense that the sisters sent a messenger to Jesus, a message to Jesus, the healer, the great physician, that's important. 
when Lazarus got sick. In fact, look at it again. They don't even say Lazarus is sick, do they? In fact, it says, it says, Lord, the one you love is sick. John's just setting this whole story up for us. And he wants us to know from the very beginning that Lazarus and Jesus are tight. Lazarus and Jesus have this really close relationship, so close that they don't even have to say his name. They just say, the one you love is sick. There's a lot of expectation with this message, isn't there? And I'm just guessing, but I'm sure the messenger thought, okay, after I take the message to Jesus and say, the one you love is sick, do you want me to stay back and wait for a response and bring it back to you? And I think Mary and Martha said, oh, honey, you don't understand. As soon as Jesus hears the one you love is sick, he might be doing Sermon on the Mount too. It really doesn't matter. He's going to drop everything he's doing, and he's going to come back because his boy Lazarus is sick. The one you love is sick. That's the setup. John's setting this up, this expectation in us. story goes on. It reads like this. It says, when he, Jesus, heard this, he said, this sickness will not end in death. No, It is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, we've read this story many times, and again, this is like the opening credits, and you just kind of want to fast forward and just kind of go through. But John here in this story throws up a big stop sign for us. He says, I know you want to skim this part, but I want you to stop and just focus right here for a minute. Something big is happening in this part of the story. Make sure you catch it. Look at what Jesus said again. Jesus said, this sickness, this bad thing, your bad thing, your that. He said, it will not end in death. No, look at the next part. He says, it is for God's glory, so that, purpose statement, God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus, hold on a second. Do you mean to tell us that you knew that the one you love would get sick, and you let this happen so that you could be glorified through it? Yeah. And the temptation, at least for me, is to just kind of close it up because if that's really the scenario, those are tough words to hear. I mean, that sounds a little bit insensitive on the part of Jesus, doesn't it, a little bit? John the writer, or John the gospel writer here, I think he knows that people might feel that way, so look at what he says next. He says, now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he dropped everything he was doing. He rented a camel. He went to Lazarus' house because he loved him, and he healed him, and God was glorified through it. If you have a Bible, does your version say that? It's not probably at all what yours. But, But come on, I mean, isn't that what you would expect Jesus to do? I mean, isn't that what you would expect? Jesus, they made it clear, he loves Lazarus. Isn't he supposed to stop everything he's doing? We'll pick up the message, the healing tomorrow. Just stay here. My friend, one of my best friends is sick. I can heal him. I've got to go there and do it. Isn't that the expectation you would have from Jesus? Look at what it really says. What it really says is this. It says, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days doesn't seem right to ignore Lazarus like that, does it? He's ignored. Do you ever feel ignored by God? 
Do you ever feel like Jesus really doesn't care about what you're going through? I mean, you may never say that. I get that. But come on. Do you ever feel like that? I mean, what do you do when the God who has the last word does not say the word you long to hear? I mean, after all, after all, if Jesus really cared, he'd do something about it, wouldn't he? I mean, he's able. He's the all-powerful creator of the universe. He just speaks a word, in, uh, speaks a word and things exist that have never existed before. Jesus, we see again and again, he heals the sick. He delivers the captives. He is the sovereign God of the universe. And the Bible tells us again and again, promise over and over and over that he'll never leave you, that he will never forsake you. Yet aren't there times when you doubt that? Or at least question it? Do you ever feel ignored by God? You know, maybe we've misnamed the series. Maybe the series shouldn't be called Puzzled. Maybe we should just call it Disappointed. You ever been disappointed by God? Maybe it's not enough. He waits two more days, and maybe he's waited in your life. Maybe disappointed's not enough. Maybe we should just call the series Angry, because if we're just being honest this morning, have you ever spent a night or a week or a season of life where you were just angry with God? I mean, here in this story, Lazarus is really sick. He is on death's door. Time is of the essence. His sisters have sent word to Jesus saying, come, help, hurry. The one you love is dying. And Jesus seemingly ignores the request of his closest friends. How'd they feel? And what is so difficult, I think, about the uncertainty and the difficulties that we face is they have this power. They have this way of blinding us. And because we can't see past the pain, we're tempted to think, because it just surrounds us on all sides, that God must not love us anymore, that maybe God's mad at us. Maybe we've done something and we're just being punished for this. And maybe in our deepest, darkest moments, we think, maybe, maybe God's really not even there. Because after all, if he had the power to do it, and if he really loved me, certainly he would have shown up by now. Certainly he would have taken care of this problem a long time ago. But listen, here's what we're going to see as the story unfolds. We're going to see that who we are is not who we will be. We're going to see that we can never assume that because God is silent, that he must also be still as many of us have experienced, and as Mary and Martha are about to in this story, Jesus does have a plan. Jesus is on the move. He's just got a different clock. So rest assured, who we are, again, is not who we will be, and where we are is not where we will be, even though in the moment, in the middle of your that, there may be no evidence of God's presence at all. Story continues. Jesus stays, and here's what happens next. John 11, 7 to 10 says, And then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. They've waited a couple days. He says, Let us go back. But Rabbi, they said, and this is great, a short while ago, the Jews there, they tried to stone you, and yet you want to go back? Here was their point. Here's why they brought this up. Jesus, maybe you don't know this, but when people try to stone you, sometimes they miss. 
And when they miss because we're with you, they hit us. We're not really excited to go back. Okay, we really don't want to go back, Jesus answered, or they said. So Jesus answered, the story goes on, and this seems a bit esoteric. It doesn't seem to fit with what's going on. Jesus said, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. It's a rather bizarre part of the story, isn't it? I mean, Lazarus, again, is seemingly forgotten. He is off, he is off dying somewhere. So we'll find out later. It's worse than that. Major crisis. His sisters have sent word to one of Lazarus' best friends who has the power to do something about it. And suddenly, Jesus goes off on this tangent about light and darkness and spiritual truths. And almost 2,000 years later, as we sit here, I know I felt this way as I read through it again in the last week or two. I read the story, and I just want to kind of clear my throat and say, Jesus, what about Lazarus? Can we do something about Lazarus? Thankfully, Jesus does. Look at what takes place next. It says, after Jesus had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Little chicken soup, some clear fluids, right? Some liquid, some rest. He'll be good as new. They don't get it. They don't get it. Jesus had been speaking of his death, it says, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. Isn't it encouraging you? It is to me that for the most, that for the most important three, maybe three and a half year period in the history of the world, when God himself would come on the greatest rescue mission man had ever seen, that the 12 guys he chose to help him do this were maybe not the best and the brightest the world had to offer. It gives me a lot of hope. I think Jesus at this point is kind of uh, rubbing his eyes and shaking his head, and look at what he says next. He said, so he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Good grief. You guys don't get it. And now Jesus is about to make a statement that I think seems incredibly insensitive. It certainly is not a statement that you would expect Jesus to make. There are amazing implications with what he says next. Look at what he says next. He says, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there. That doesn't sound right, does it? I think his disciples are thinking, hold on, pause a minute, Jesus. Don't don't, don't go any further. I gotta be honest. That, That just doesn't seem to fit. You mean, you knew your close friend was sick and you didn't do anything about it? Yep, that's right. Hold on, Jesus, help me out. So you knew when the messengers came and they brought word back a few days ago that you knew that Lazarus was sick and dying. You knew that his sisters were gonna be nursing him, praying and hoping and waiting and expecting and you weren't gonna show up and do anything about it? That's it. And hold on, that last part I'm having a really hard time with. Did you just tell us that you're glad about it? That you're glad you weren't there? Yeah. Hold on, Jesus, what could be so important that you are glad that you did not do anything to help your friend Lazarus? 
So Jesus answers the questions, I think, going on in their head. Jesus says, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Hold on, hold on. So it is so important that we would mature and develop in our faith or even come to faith, that you would let someone suffer and die if it would produce that result? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's that important to me. Now, that's just a whole new category, isn't it? It doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Story continues. It says, Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, and before we see what he said, this is kind of funny. This is the humor. This is the part in the story where John is wanting us to kind of exhale for a moment. You remember Winnie the Pooh? Winnie the Pooh had a friend, Eeyore. For Eeyore, everything that could go wrong would go wrong. Every sunny day, it was just a day before, a day of rain. You've, in your family or your group of friends, you've got one of these people, right? If you're not sure who that is, a mirror might help. A Debbie Downer, right? One of those kind of people, Well, the 12 apostles had one too, and his name was Thomas. And this is so funny. This is great. Look at what Thomas says next. Well, let us also go that we may die with him. Isn't that great? I mean, he's thinking, if it just couldn't get any worse, Lazarus is dead. Jesus wants to go back. Every time we go through there, they're trying to stone us. Maybe I won't even see the stone coming, and, you know, it'll end. I'm going to go die with Jesus today. It's, It's over right? I mean, you could maybe think, okay, maybe Thomas is showing some faith here because he's willing to die for the cause, and I get that, but Thomas still isn't the guy you want planning the parties, right? Story goes on. Their trip has taken place, and it says, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, there's so much here. Why four days? So many times in the Bible we hear about three days or seven days or 40 days, all these things, but why four days? Well, there's scholarship or study that shows that a common thought amongst people at that time was that after a person had been dead three days, that on the fourth day, the spirit would depart from the body. For the first three days, the spirit would just kind of hover over top, but on the fourth day, the spirit would depart. So being four days dead basically meant that Lazarus was dead Dead, 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 dead. Lazarus wasn't ever coming back. This wasn't a coma. He wasn't, you know, kind of passed out for a little bit. But this guy was absolutely dead. It's a point about four days. And again, go back to Mary and Martha. This is not at all what they expected to, expected to happen, was it? I mean, Lazarus was really sick. And everybody knew that it looked bad. Whatever the sickness was, everybody knew, ooh, this is not going a good direction. But Mary and Martha, I don't think, were worried at all. Why? Because they had sent word to Jesus. They had sent word to the healer, and they just knew that Jesus was coming. I mean, they had seen Jesus do all kinds of miracles, all kinds of healings. They had even seen Jesus heal strangers and heal Romans. So they just knew that Jesus was going to show up and heal their brother. And when Lazarus, I think, or one of the sisters would start to get a little worried, they'd just kind of encourage one another with that with the simple phrase, Jesus is coming. Don't worry. I know you're worried, but Jesus is coming. And somebody else will worry, don't worry. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And a little time went by. And people in the area started to whisper. There were some doubters in, in the crowd. 
And maybe Mary and Martha got just a little bit angry with them. And they said, for the last time, I know it doesn't look good. I know he's getting worse. I know all hope is lost. But Jesus is coming. Except Jesus didn't come. Lazarus died. And finally, the people who help with these matters, I think, came over and put their arms around a weeping Mary and Martha. And they said, I'm sorry, but he's gone. It's over. We need to put him in the tomb. We need to, we need to have the funeral. Jesus isn't coming. It's over. And they were disappointed with Jesus, weren't they? They were confused, they were angry, and they could not understand why he didn't show up. I mean, they believed. I mean, there's belief all over this story. Just sending the message shows that they believed. They had an expectation that he would show up, and, and he didn't come. And you know, it would be one thing if that happened to people who lived 2,000 years ago, who we've never met. But the truth is that we don't have to tell a story this old because in some point in our life, we've lived something like this, haven't we? We've lived a time when Jesus just didn't show up and we were angry or disappointed. And, and, and I, if I can let you into my mind in thinking about this series and talking about when, when God leaves us puzzled or disappoints us really hasn't been a lot of fun to talk about. I mean, I would rather talk so much more about victory or prayers that are answered or freedom in Christ or God's amazing grace, something like that, because that's exciting. It's not exciting. It's not fun to talk about stuff like this. But these stories are in Scripture, and they're there, and I thought about this this week, and I'm going to say this just the way that I want to say it, but I think this story is in there and stories like it because God knows that following Jesus can be a very disappointing experience sometimes. Following Jesus can be a very disappointing experience sometimes. I mean, I doubt that makes a bumper sticker, but it's true, isn't it? I mean, from the very beginning, from the very beginning, Jesus was disappointing people. I mean, nobody wanted a Messiah born from a teenage mom from some hick town. That's not what they wanted. That was disappointing. No, they wanted a royal king, a military leader to come and take over by force. That's what they wanted. Servant leadership, Jesus taught about that, disappointing. Forgive those who hurt you, disappointing. Give unto Caesar, now that's really disappointing, right? I mean, they were so disappointed as we read in the story. They tried to stone him at points in his ministry. Peter was disappointed by Jesus. One time, Peter's mother-in-law was sick, and Jesus healed her, and Peter was disappointed. Many scholars believe that's why Peter denied him. No. Take up your cross. It's disappointing. Last week, John the Baptist was beheaded. I think that's disappointing. And Lazarus now, laying it to him, disappointed. And Jesus walks into Bethany four days late. Walk into Bethany with him. And notice the air is thick. It is heavy with disappointment. 
Disappointment is all around, and Jesus walks into town. Look at what takes place next. It says, Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. In other words, they showed up. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Mary's still too mad. She's too hurt. She's too disappointed. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, we've prayed something like that before, haven't we? I mean, Jesus, if you'd have just heard my prayer, if you'd have just shown up, if you'd have just done one of those things that you've done countless times before, if you'd have just done that in my life, it would be different. Jesus, this is your fault. Isn't that what she's saying? But she's not finished. The next part of this verse, and maybe you've read ahead, is so good. Look at what she says next. In the midst of her pain, in the midst of her disappointment, somehow she gets this out. She says, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And I love this because if you're following along in your Bible and you've got something to write with, you need to circle or highlight or underline all of it, those two words, even now. Because somehow, in the depths of Martha's grief and despair and disappointment and anger, somehow, in the midst of all that, she has this beautiful expression of faith. Her brother, don't miss it, her brother's been dead for four days. He's lying in a tomb, and she's thinking, I know it makes no sense. I know I should doubt you. I know I should just, just revel in this anger, but I've seen too much to doubt you. I've seen too much to walk away. Somehow, Jesus, I know that even now, if you just put your mind to it, even now, Jesus, you can do something about it. Even now, I know it's not too late. Do you know that even though you may have suffered disappointment and confusion with God's inactivity or silence about your that, about whatever you're going through. Do you know that even now, it's not too late with Jesus? Do you know that Jesus offers hope even now? Jesus sees her faith. He sees a faith that has been tested in a heartbreaking way. But he wants to make sure she sees it. So look at what he does next. This is so good. Jesus said to her, and this is what we say a lot of times to people when they go through hard times. He says, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know. Don't go there. I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And then Jesus said to her something that either makes him crazy or makes him the Messiah. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die don't miss this. Do you believe this? Listen, there will come a moment or a time in your struggle, in your trial, in your uncertainty, in your doubts, where Jesus will ask you this question. Do you believe? Do you still believe? It is the question. And this is the perfect 
time to ask it. Because belief is easy when the sun rises and the warm breezes blow, when everything is all right. But the true test comes when you're confused by God and disappointed by God and puzzled by what God does or doesn't do. And when you scream out to God, I don't like this. This is not what I expected. This is not what I prayed you would do. I took a stand on my faith. My coworkers, my neighbors, my own family, they even think that I'm crazy. But I took a stand. I believe in you, and you have let me down. Maybe some of you have been there. Maybe some of you are there right now. And listen, here's what Jesus is saying to you today. Because he loves you, and because he wants what is best for you, and even though it's nearly impossible to see his rationale or his plan at the moment, he whispers in that pain, do you believe? In this moment, in this trial, when all seems lost, Do you trust me? There's a piece that comes with the answer. Look at what takes place next. Martha somehow says, yes, Lord. She replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. How did she say that? It's absolutely beautiful, isn't it? I mean, a peace that passes all understanding. Suddenly the worry and the hurt and the pain and the grief were pushed aside, and it was just her and Jesus. And she said, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't know why you didn't show up, but I still believe. And a peace washed over her. Here's how we know that. Look at what takes place next. It says, after she said this, she went back and she called her sister Mary aside. She said, the teacher's here, and he's asking for you. Now, when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but he was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's the right thing to say, isn't it? I mean, it's it's Mary's turn. Mary is emotionally, physically, and spiritually weak. If you know a little bit about Mary and Martha, you know that Martha seems to be the more contemplative one, the thinker, while Mary seems to be more the feeler, much more in touch with her emotions. And when Jesus first comes, Mary's too hurt to even leave the house. When she hears it, she doesn't even go out to see him. And that's okay with Jesus. She's suffering. She's hurting. Jesus knows her personality. Mary feels betrayed by Jesus. She's wrought with emotion over the death of her brother and the disappointment that Jesus didn't come a few days ago. So she stews a little bit before Jesus arrives or when he first arrives. But in classic Mary fashion, and it's so great if you know a little bit about Mary, once Jesus takes the first step, she sprints right towards him. Once she knows that he's here, that he's asking for her, she goes the rest of the way. And when she gets there, she said, Lord, if you'd just been here, if, if Jesus, if, if Jesus, if you'd have been here, things would be different. And perhaps it is now that you would expect It's what I would have done if I was Jesus. I'd have leaned down. I'd have put my arms around Mary and Martha, and I'd have said, stop crying. Wipe the tears away. 
let's go get your brother. I'm going to bring him back. Isn't that what you would expect Jesus to do right now? It's not what he does. Watch what Jesus does next. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. That's, that's really kind of a poor translation. What those words really mean there is more anger, outrage, indignation. Listen, Jesus hates death and the suffering that comes with it. Jesus is angry. So he says, where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. They're saying, let us go show you where your friend, our brother, who you didn't come and heal, where we've laid him in a tomb. The emotion is thick. So here's what the text says next. It says simply, Jesus wept. Do you see Jesus? Listen, Jesus is always more concerned about someone than he is something. The sisters wanted something. They wanted healing for their brother. Jesus wanted someone. He wanted them. He wanted their hearts. He wanted people to come to faith as a, as a result of this. And in this text, you see Jesus cares so much as this is, is being played out right here. He cares so much. He cares so much. He enters their pain. He enters their hurt. And even though he could run to the tomb and get them out, He's so in the moment with them. He's so walking with them. They're so never alone. He's present with them that as they weep, as the mourners are out and they're weeping, he weeps with them. He weeps with us in our pain. See, it's important to know that we serve a Savior who walks right beside us and carries us through experiences that are darker than we could ever imagine. And he doesn't just say, get up. Sometimes he says, let's just sit here for a moment. Let's just hold each other for a moment. I know it hurts, and I hurt right with you. In this text, it's beautiful. It says, Jesus wept. Now you know how the story ends, right? We don't have time to get into it. If you don't know how it ends, you can read it. Lazarus comes forth. I think it's great. The great church father, Augustine, said this. don't know if this is true, but it's, it sounds good. He said that Jesus had to say, Lazarus, come forth. Because if he had just said, come forth, all the dead people would have came out of the tombs. Jesus just has that kind of power. So he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out of the tomb. He's brought back to life. All is well again. The sisters rejoice. There's a party like none they had ever seen. And maybe the cherry on top is what we're told happened right after this. Lazarus comes out of the tomb. Remember back at the beginning when Jesus said, this would happen so that it was the so that that people would come, that you develop and mature in your faith. Look at what takes place next. It says, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. I bet they did. Right? I mean, Lazarus wasn't passed out. He was, they made a point to tell us, dude was dead. He was dead, 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 dead. And Jesus shows up and he walks out of the tomb. How could you not believe? Right? Says they believed. So here's the question. The question we started with this morning, the question all of us have asked. 
Why doesn't God do something about that? And the emotionally unsatisfying answer is that sometimes we just don't know. Sometimes, as we saw last time with John the Baptist, the ending is not good. And sometimes it may end well, but it's not in your timing. It may get really dark before the light comes, before the answer comes. But here's what I think we know. Based on this time in Bethany so long ago, I think here's what we know. Why doesn't God do something about that? We know this. We know he can. We know sometimes he waits. And we know we can trust him because we never walk alone. Why doesn't God do something about the that in your life? I don't know. But I know this. I know he can. I know sometimes he waits. And I know that while we're waiting, we can trust him because we don't walk alone. We have a Savior who comes and weeps and mourns and grieves and carries us in the pain. I know he can. I know sometimes he waits. But I know I can trust him because I never walk alone. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you. You are good. You are better than we deserve. You don't give us what we deserve. Thank you. You give us so much more. You've given us your son. And God, we, we even now can come to you because of what Jesus did for us. That, Lord, you never looked at us and said, because of this, I'll cast you away. But you said, I'll send my son to show you that I love and that I care. That even now, Lord, if we're apart from you, that we can come to you. That even now, Lord, if the pain in our life is unbearable, that even now you can still do something about it. Help us to ask. Help us to trust. Help us to experience the closeness of your presence, that we're never alone. Father, thank you that in the story you included the fact that Jesus wept, that we know we never walk alone, we never weep alone, we never hurt alone. Father, thank you. Thank you for the hope of a resurrection as you told us in the story. But thank you, Lord, that you can do something even now. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.